0: Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome or welcome back to my YouTube channel. If you're new here, I upload true crime videos like this one every Sunday, although sometimes also on other days of the week too. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, then be sure to hit that subscribe button and tick that little bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video. In today's case, which was actually voted on by my Patreon and channel members, make sure you check those out if you want to vote on monthly cases, we're going to be exploring the chilling case of the human hunter. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case I just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before especially on my channel and it's not without good reason Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all of my documentary needs with a wide range of documentaries from space nature to true crime and with 4k at no extra cost it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week. So if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched Operation Oblivion behind Pacific Lines. In the darkest days of World War II in the Pacific, the British Special Operation Executive, or SOE, faced a critical obstacle to their operations in the Far East. How could their agents infiltrate Japanese occupied territories? and establish links with the Chinese resistance without sticking out like a sore thumb. Operation Oblivion uncovers the stories of 12 Chinese Canadians and their secret training under the guidance of British SOE operatives, combining newly shot interviews and never-before-seen images with animated sequences that vividly recreate the remarkable stories of Force 136. Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch Operation Oblivion behind Pacific Lines. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I said before, new documentaries like Operation Oblivion Behind Pacific Lines are added to Magellan TV weekly, so do not sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the links below, and thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. Darlene Madeline Anderson was born on Friday the 2nd of July 1965 in Omaha, Nebraska to parents Leon and Thelma Anderson. Should be one of seven children born into the family with four brothers, Dan, Derek, Daryl and Bruce, and two sisters, Leanne and Linda. We don't know much about Darlene's upbringing, but what we do know is that in her late teens she met a man called Lawrence Todd Ewalt, known as Todd to his friends and family. Todd had been born on the 23rd of June 1964 in Omaha, Nebraska to parents Vernon and Margaret and when Todd turned 20 and Darlene turned 19, he asked for her hand in marriage. The couple married on the 10th of August 1984 in Carter, Montana and at some point thereafter the couple moved to West Hanover Township in Pennsylvania. Darlene found work as a saddle maker in the area, and Todd found work as a carpenter. The couple had two children together, a son called Nick, and a daughter called Nicole, who completed their family unit. By 2007, the family had been long well established in West Hanover Township, with Todd taking the lead as the youth football coach for the local youth team. Through being a youth football coach, Todd and Arlene had become friends with many of the parents of the kids that Todd coached. Chet and Pat Gerhart had been the parents of two sons that Todd had coached, and the Gerharts and the Ewaltz families had grown particularly close. In fact, Chet and Pat had actually invited Darlene and Todd to come with them on a cruise that October of 2007 as their two sons had both misbehaved and so, as a punishment, they had invited the Ewalts to take their sons places. And Darlene was beyond excited to go on this cruise as she'd never been on one before. However, the cruise actually fell on a week in the midst of the intensive football season, and so, Todd decided to pull out of the cruise. He knew just how excited his wife Darlene had been to go on this cruise, and so he had given her his blessing to go without him. Now, this meant that there was a free place available on the cruise, and Darlene had several girlfriends who she could have invited to take Todd's place. On Friday the 13th of July 2007, Darlene phoned up Chet to talk about the cruise, and day quickly became night as the call went on. Darlene wanted to go over every single detail of the cruise as she had never been on one before and needed to know absolutely everything, from the island ports that it would stop at, to what clothes she should take, and how much money she'd need. At about 10pm that night, Todd opened the back door to the family's property and stepped out onto the patio where Darlene had been chatting away on the phone with Chet about the cruise. Todd told Darlene that he was going up to bed and Darlene responded by telling him that she'd be up in a few moments. This made Todd chuckle as both he and Darlene both knew that that wasn't true and that Darlene would be on the phone for much much longer. Regardless, Todd went upstairs to bed, leaving Darlene chatting away on the patio. As 2am came around, some four hours later, Darlene was still outside on the patio talking away to Chet on the phone about the cruise. She had only been just a few feet away from the sliding glass doors of her home. Suddenly, there was a rustling coming from the woods behind the property. You see, the Ewalt home was in the West Hanover Township in Dauphin County and had been very close to the I-81 which bisected Manor Drive. The Ewalt family could hear the traffic of the highway at night, with the noise oftentimes causing deer and other animals to head towards their home. But in the early hours of that night, what emerged from the shadows of the woods hadn't been a deer. A dark figure appeared from the blackness of the trees, holding a large knife in a gloved hand, though it hadn't been until this man had been very close to Darlene that she had noticed him. Darlene was understandably startled by the sudden appearance of this man, and she'd still been on the phone with Chet when he'd appeared. She asked the man, who are you? Chet was completely unaware of who Darlene had been talking to, but he was chilled to the bone by the sudden change of tone in her voice. The unknown man walked up the patio, approached Darlene, and began stabbing her repeatedly in the neck and torso. Darlene, who was still on the phone, began losing consciousness. Chet heard her on the phone saying, Oh my God, over and over again, before falling silent. He started calling Darlene's name over and over through the phone, louder each time, but he got no response. He knew immediately that something was very, very wrong. Chet rushed to wake up his wife, Pat, and after telling her what had happened, they both jumped into the car and sped off towards the Ewalt family home. As they drove, they contacted the authorities and the police told them that, as they were already on the way to the Ewalt home, that they should go check out the situation and call them back. Chet and Pat made a 15 minute drive in just 10 minutes. They pulled up to the Ewalt home, and Chet immediately went to the rear of the property, as he knew Darlene had been on the patio when they'd been on the phone. Chet found Darlene seated on a chair, slumped backwards, and not moving. Both Chet and Pat rushed back to their car, locked themselves inside, and dialed 911. The police arrived on the scene within minutes. Chet and Pat were taken to the local police station to give statements as other officers investigated the rear of the property. Darlene was confirmed to have been murdered. Officers then entered the Ewalt family home, hoping desperately that they wouldn't find any more victims of the murderer at large. They stormed into the marital bedroom to find Todd, who on all accounts was a very heavy sleeper, still fast asleep. The police woke him up and Todd believed initially that it had all been some kind of prank, but he soon realised something serious was going on. The officers demanded to know who else had been in the house, to which Todd responded by saying quite, My son and my wife live here with me. My wife's around here somewhere and my son, Nick, is probably asleep in the basement. He was then handcuffed and taken downstairs as his son, who had also been handcuffed, was brought up from the basement. Todd demanded to know what was going on and where his wife was, but the officers gave him no answers. He was then taken to the dining room and uncuffed, while his son was taken to the adjoining kitchen. The police officers then informed Todd that his wife, Darlene, had been murdered. They told Darlene and Todd's son Nick at the same time, and screams erupted from. in the kitchen where Nick was being held. Todd was immediately deemed to have been a person of interest in the investigation. The police had no motive, just the facts. What they knew was that the 42-year-old wife and mother, Darlene, had been killed while on the phone with another man and that her husband, asleep by a window mere feet from the crime, claimed to have not heard a thing. The police spoke with Todd at the police station and questioned him for hours on the night of the murder. The following day, they questioned him even further. Investigators inquired as to his relationship with Darlene. They knew that the couple had had financial-based arguments, and Todd admitted to them in the interviews that the couple had previously fought over paying their bills on time. One of the officers accused Todd by saying quote, You killed your wife because you were having financial problems. Naturally, Todd was shocked by the bold and presumptuous accusation. Investigators watched Todd carefully, analysing his responses, taking notes, and looking for any discrepancies in what he told them. Todd defended himself by denying killing Darlene, and telling the authorities that despite the couple previously having arguments concerning financials in the past, At that point, things were going well for the family, financially. Todd had a good job, and the couple had plenty saved up at the bank. The police then told Todd that Darlene had allegedly been planning on leaving him, and that was why Todd had killed her. Todd, again, denied this categorically, and offered to take a lie detector test. It's important to note that the validity and accuracy of lie detector tests are not the best. I mean, I've spoken about them numerous times on my channel before. There is a reason they're inadmissible in the court of law. And so, Todd conducted the lie detector test. Though, when the police told him that he'd actually failed it, he couldn't believe it. Interestingly, Todd was never actually shown the failed results, and as lie detector tests are typically used as a form of intimidation, Todd suspected that this alleged fail test had merely been a method of getting him to say something incriminating. Following these results, Todd refused to answer any further questioning without an attorney present. Todd would never actually be formally charged with his wife Darlene's murder, but he was questioned repeatedly for the days that followed. At around 2am on Tuesday the 17th of July 2007, the same unknown man, dressed in black, that had brutally murdered Darlene, prowled through the streets of Bowers Bridge Road. He tried the doors of the homes he came across, trying to find any that were unlocked, and when he found one that had been left unlocked, he quietly walked in. The house that he had entered had been that of 37-year-old Patricia Brooks and she had fallen asleep downstairs on the sofa that night. She was awoken by a sudden, sharp pain on the right side of her shoulder and across her neck. The man, dressed in black, stood over her as the attack continued. Patricia felt a warm wetness envelop her body, and she quickly realised that she'd been stabbed. She managed to catch only a brief glimpse of her attacker's face, but what she would remember most was the pungent body odour of the man smelt like a wild animal. Fortunately, Patricia's family had been asleep upstairs, and had been awoken by the noise and the struggle coming from downstairs. Patricia could hear footsteps upstairs moving towards the staircase, and her attacker could hear those too. She knew that to survive, she'd have to make her attacker believe she was dead, and so she fell completely still, like a possum, and her attacker stopped. The unknown man, believing Patricia to be on death's door, left the house through the back door. Patricia watched as he left, waiting a few moments to ensure he wouldn't return before pressing against the open wounds on her neck. She tried to get up, but was obviously lightheaded from the mass loss of blood. Patricia made her way to the bottom of the stairs, wanting desperately to get to safety in case the man came back. She met her mother and her daughter on the landing, who helped her up the stairs and safely into a room where they called for an ambulance and the authorities. Patricia was rushed to the hospital. She sustained several serious wounds. According to the book Caught in the Act, which has been pivotal in our research, quote, several major veins and arteries in her neck were cut, including a nick to both external jugulars. Her esophagus and trachea were damaged as well. She required immediate surgery, but her status was good after she left the OR. Patricia would amazingly survive the attack, and she'd provide vital information in the investigation. She told the police of how her attacker had been donned in black, and that he had been wearing a dark cap and a wide tool belt strapped to his wrist. Further, Patricia recounted the man's foul body odour and pot belly to the authorities. The attack on Patricia had occurred just four days after Darlene had been murdered, though the authorities didn't connect the dots. In Darlene's case, they had still been dead-set focused on Todd being Darlene's killer, but they still didn't have any real evidence to go on. And by the end of July, there had still been no leads in Darlene's case or in Patricia's case. No connection had been drawn between the two cases, though they had happened 30 miles apart, so it wouldn't have been immediately clear to the investigators. The only similarities between the murder of Darlene and the attack on Patricia had been the weapon used, and oddly, how close each of the victims had lived to the interstate. At around 2am, the same time as it had been with Darlene and Patricia, in Bloomsbury, New Jersey, the authorities started receiving calls from people complaining that somebody had been trying their door handles, trying to get inside. It's important to note that the I-78 runs straight through the small town, with a truck stop situated to the east. It was from that very truck stop that a man dressed in black slipped away towards Bloomsbury. He walked through the backyards of several of the nearby houses, trying the doors as he went. That was when he came across 79 Main Street, the home of 38-year-old Monica Massaro. The man gently opened the door into the ground floor apartment and listened intently to the sound inside. When he was satisfied it was silent, he began to explore the flat. The man came across a set of car keys, placed on a coffee table in the living room of the property, picked them up and quietly slipped out the front door. He headed towards a car parked on the driveway and unlocked it. Inside, the man located a pocketbook in the vehicle, along with a purse, which he quickly began rooting through, pulling out credit cards and cash. Though it hadn't been the cards of the cash that had caught his eye, rather the driver's license of Monica Massaro. It was at that moment that the hunt began. The man surveyed the property closer, inferring from the facts there had only been one car on the driveway that Monica had been a woman who had been unmarried and alone. How he came to that conclusion, I am not sure. He pulled a knife from his waist belt and slowly made his way back into Monica's unlocked apartment. The man worked his way down the hallway to a closed door, which he cautiously opened to reveal a cupboard, which he began going through, looking for any valuables. He then noticed a partially open door that he could see a dresser through. The man slowly opened the door, expecting to see Monica fast asleep in her bed, though instead, he was faced with Monica sat upright, absolutely terrified, clutching a remote control for the overhead fan. She had been awoken by the sounds of someone rummaging around in her apartment, and her initial thoughts about it, maybe being an upstairs neighbour, jokingly stumbling in, were very quickly quashed. Monica, in her panic, clicked on the overhead fan using the remote control, which also switched on the light for the room. As the room flooded with light, Monica began to scream, jumping from her bed. The man in response charged at her with the knife. He grabbed her, covering her mouth with his hand to silence her, but Monica was a fighter and she bit his hand hard, causing him to pull away. The man grew enraged and threw Monica onto the bed, climbing on top of her before using the knife to lacerate her throat. Tragically, the wound that Monica had sustained was fatal. Her murderer then began a post mortem attack on her body, inflicting numerous more lacerations. After he'd been satisfied, the man began to search for a trophy to take home with him, grabbing a necklace from Monica's dresser, before leaving the apartment through the side door to ensure nobody saw him. He'd also taken with him Monica's purse, dumping the contents of it on the side of some train tracks as he made his way back to the truck stop. Importantly, he disposed of Monica's credit cards and driver's license in a trash can at the truck stop before he had got back into his cab. The man would actually remain at the truck stop for a while, getting something to eat and doing some light shopping at the truck stop's shop. Shay McDonough was born in September of 1991 to parents Jeannie and Kevin McDonough in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. And she had an older brother called Ryan. In the hot evening of Sunday, the 29th of July, 2007, Shay's parents had returned home from a dinner out and Kevin, Shay's father, decided to call it an early night and head up to bed while his wife and Shay's mother, Jeannie, stayed up to watch the Red Sox game that was on that night. Shay, who was 15 years old, hadn't gone out to dinner with her parents that evening and instead had gone to hang out with friends. Though, she made sure to get home before her 12am curfew, actually arriving about 15 minutes before the curfew to ensure she would be on time. Shay went straight to the back door of the family home to see if it had been unlocked, which it had been, and so she entered the house and left the back door unlocked as she thought that her brother had still to return home that night. However, what Shay didn't know was that her older brother, Ryan, had actually called their parents earlier that evening to let them know that he was going to spend the night at his friend's house. After the Red Sox game had finished, and after Jeannie was sure that her daughter Shay had safely returned home and had gone to bed, Jeannie called it a night and headed up to the marital bedroom to get some sleep. At some point during the night, Jeannie heard what sounded like a muffled cry coming from Shay's bedroom. She would later describe this cry as sounding like, quote, a little whimper. Jeannie immediately thought that Shay must have been having a bad dream or something to that effect, and she hadn't been the only one to notice the muffled cry. Kevin, Shay's father, had also heard it, and he and Jeannie both decided to get up at the same time and go check on their daughter, which was something that they had never done before together, at least not since Shay had been a child since she was a baby. This was something that was very rare that they both decided to go and check on her. Kevin opened the door to Shay's bedroom to see a black shadowy figure standing over his daughter's bed. Shay, just moments earlier, had awoken in the middle of the night to a cold object pressing down on her throat. At first she thought it had been a gun, though she quickly realized that it was actually a knife. Shay then saw the man that had been holding the knife to her throat, noticing his dark eyes, black clothes, and mask. It was then that the man spoke to Shay, though she didn't recognize his voice, saying, quote, If you make any- noise, I'm going to kill you. Shay began to panic and started kicking at the man, trying her hardest to make as much noise as possible to wake up her parents so that they could save her, completely ignoring the threats from the man who was holding a knife to her throat. Pretty badass, if you ask me. It was that noise that had awoken her parents and they burst into her room. Kevin shouted at the man, asking who he was, and the man immediately turned his attention to Kevin, Shay's father, and charged at him with the knife. The man was described by Shay as being three times the size of her father, but that didn't stop Kevin. Kevin jumped on top of the unknown attacker, forcing him onto the bed while trying to grab the knife as Shay rushed to safety. The knife itself was very big and very sharp. Kevin then started shouting for someone to grab the knife from the attacker while he tried to restrain him. Jeannie, Shay's mother, tried to grab the handle of the knife, but she had been unable to free it from the man's grip. And so, in a state of desperation, Jeannie grabs the blade of the knife to prevent the attacker from using it. Kevin then shouted for Shay to go call 911 and to grab his gun, even though Kevin didn't actually own a gun. He knew the attacker didn't know that and thought that it might scare the unknown man off. Let's take a listen to part of the 911 call that Shay made that night. All right, all right, just all right. Is he still Despite Kevin and Jeannie's best efforts, the man managed to overpower Kevin and stood up with Kevin on his back. This caused the knife to slip through Jeannie's hands, causing further lacerations. It was at this moment that both Jeannie and Kevin feared the worst—that they had lost the fight for their lives. Kevin had to think fast. He thought back to his time wrestling at high school and remembered how he'd been taught to use a chokehold to take down opponents bigger than him. And so he began to choke the man, managing to get him into a chokehold using his full weight. Kevin and the attacker then fell to the floor, and Jeannie grabbed the blade of the knife once more. The knife caused deep lacerations to Jeannie's hands, but she refused to let it go. She refused to let this man hurt her family. She screamed at the man in anger, saying, quote, What were you thinking? To which the man responded by saying that he just wanted money. The attacker's accent immediately stuck out to Jeannie and Kevin, as he went on to state that he's just a nobody, asking them to let him go. Kevin told the man that he wasn't going anywhere. It was at around this same time that the police pulled into the driveway of the family home. They stormed into the property and into Shay's bedroom where Kevin and Jeannie had restrained the attacker and they arrested him. As soon as the police had the man under their control, Jeannie and Kevin and Shay grabbed a hold of each other and embraced one another tightly. Detectives arrived on the scene and began to search for any evidence, locating the knife which had been a kind that they'd never seen before, some throwing stars and wires which looked like they would be used for choking people out. Jeannie and Shay were then rushed to the hospital via ambulance so that Jeannie's deep lacerations to her hands could be attended to. Ryan, the only family member who hadn't been home during the attack, was understandably shocked when he found out what had happened. He started blaming himself for not being there to help fight off the attacker, though his family assured him that the only person to blame was the man that had tried to destroy their lives. The attacker was then identified to have been a long-haul trucker by the name of Adam Leroy Lane. Adam was taken to the Chelmsford Police Department where he was charged on nine different counts. These charges included home invasion while armed and masked, kidnapping, three counts of armed assault in a dwelling with intent to commit a felony, threat to commit a crime, assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, larceny of property of $250, resisting arrest, attempted at murder and possession of a dangerous weapon. Adam told the authorities that his truck had been parked at a rest stop on I-495 North from where he had walked and stumbled upon the McDonough family home. The police dispatched officers to seize the rig and to have it towed to the police department where it could be searched. The trailer itself had actually been completely empty, though, for the police to conduct a search on the cab to look through Adam's personal items, they needed to obtain a search warrant. Once that had been granted, the police located another knife inside the cab, a handheld scouting scope, and a portable DVD player with a movie inside. And the name of that movie Hunting Humans. Other items were also found within the cab, such as other DVDs, but importantly they also found a necklace. This necklace wasn't identified to have been either Jeannie's or Shay's, and so the police didn't really pay much attention at the time, though they would later learn uh, that it had been Monica's. At the hospital, Jeannie was given 11 stitches in order to close up two separate deep lacerations on the palm of her right hand, and eight more stitches for the lacerations on her left. The doctors strongly advised that both Shay and Jeannie speak with a psychiatric professional, to which they agreed to do so before being discharged. Meanwhile, the detectives began their interrogations of Adam Lane what immediately stuck out to them during these interrogations had been the odour that emanated from Adam Lane. The odour being described as being so offensive and powerful that the detective had to leave the door to the room open while they conducted the interview. The smell reminded them of decomposing tissue. Adam's heavily southern accent also stuck out to the investigators, with it apparently being so thick that they had trouble understanding one another. Adam was sure to complain about his split lower lip, which had begun to swell and had been inflicted during his arrest. It appeared to the authorities that he had only been concerned for his own well-being and health, and not of anybody else. He tried to make it seem as if he had been the victim. Adam described everything that had been wrong with him medically, and informed them that his diabetes medication had been left in his truck and that he needed it. The authorities largely ignored Adam's complaints. He had already been medically examined by professionals and they had determined him to have not needed any kind of treatment. His diabetes medication was brought to the station quickly though. On top of his medical torments, Adam began expressing that he was hungry and needed to eat, and knowing that he had diabetes, the police had to ensure he had some kind of food to prevent any kind of diabetes related medical emergency. And so officers brought him some Burger King burgers and fries, hoping that it may result in him giving a confession, maybe he would feel happier with a full stomach and be open to a confession. By this point it had been about 8am the morning after the attacks, and Jeannie, Kevin and Shay had been en route to the police station to give formal statements about what had happened. The family members were separated from one another as they gave written statements, though as Jeannie has sustained those wounds to both her hands, she had to dictate her statement verbally to her daughter Shay to be written down after Shay had completed her own statement. As a side note, it's very bizarre to me that an officer or someone with the police didn't step in to write down Jeannie's statement as verbally dictated, as it being left down to her 15-year-old daughter to do so, that's... Just a bit strange to me. Back in the interrogation room, the detectives were reading Adam Lane his rights, and once they had done so, he said, quote, What's it matter anyway? The detectives asked him to repeat himself, and so Adam repeated himself. What's it matter anyway? I'm in a load of trouble. Adam then asked for his attorney. No connection between Adam and any of the other cases we have spoken about in this episode had, at that point, been made. That the detectives had publicly speculated that the attack on the McDonough family hadn't been Adam Lane's first attack. On the 6th of August 2007, a dangerousness hearing was held for Adam Lane to establish whether or not he was considered a danger to the community at large this was to see whether or not bail should be granted to adam pending trial and had been down to the prosecutors to prove to the courts that the risk to public safety was so great that they had that they must hold adam lane without bail until the trial the hearing itself lasted about an hour, with the McDonough family and Adam Lane both being present during the proceedings. And by the end of the hearing, the judge ruled that Adam Lane was a danger to society and a serious flight risk, and so he would be continued to be held without bail until his trial dates. This hearing happened on the same day as the funeral service that was taking place back in New Jersey for Monica Massaro. The Chalmster Police Department continued working to find out everything they could about Adam Lane and they deeply believed that he may have been responsible for a similar unsolved crime somewhere else in the country. And so they decided to send out a communication via the national teletype and shared everything they had about Adam Lane with other police departments around the country. But the Chancellor detectives knew it was highly likely this communication could end up lost under a pile of files in stations across the nation, so they decided to phone up other jurisdictions to make sure they were aware, a process that took multiple staff members days to complete. The FBI had also become involved and they were working to file with VICAP, which is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Programme, a digital database used to track details on violent crime. used by police nationwide and is provided by the FBI. On the 10th of August 2007, the case of Adam Lane was filed onto VICAP, including details of his trucking routes, hoping a detective with an unsolved case would stumble upon it. On the 20th of August 2007, the Middlesex District Attorney's Office and the Chelmsford Police Department publicly announced the identity of Adam Leroy Lane and his arrest, and this finally drew the attention of departments outside of the state. The detectives working on the case of Monica Massaro began to notice the similarities, and so they contacted the Chelmsford detectives to see if their cases could be connected. They had to find a piece of evidence that placed Adam Lane in Bloomsbury, or that area, on or around the 29th of July. So the Chelmsford detectives started going through all of the evidence they had collected. That was when they found a receipt dated July 29th, and the location on the receipt, Bloomsbury. On the 2nd of August 2007, the detectives on the Monica Massaro case interviewed Adam Lane in connection to their case. More than an hour had passed before the New Jersey detectives on Monica's case finally asked Adam about what he had been doing in Bloomsbury. Quote, Adam, tell us what happened on the night when you were in New Jersey and stopped at the rest stop off Route 78, and Adam didn't hold back. He gave a chillingly blunt confession of the events that occurred in Bloomsbury on the 29th of July 2007, from the rest stop, to how he tried different doors, to when he found and murdered Monica Massaro. Let's take a look at an extract from the video of this interview. Notice how Adam tries to claim it had been an accident. I had the it was on the bed, about that long. she rolled against it the cover out here. There wouldn't be nothing to do, you couldn't. I mean, it was gushing everywhere. You couldn't do nothing with it. After that, when she died, it made it look like somebody had insulted her and everything and all that. I, I figured you'd go off the track. I didn't know what else to do. I do let's, "Let's, Let's go through this, okay? Piece by piece, inch by inch." It's imperative that this is your story, this is, you were there, and you weren't, okay? That night, one time, what was an accident? Yeah, it was an accident. I never meant to hurt nobody. body. God knows I don't want I killed nobody. Adam goes on to state that he tried to cover up the murder by making it seem like Monica had been killed during a sex crime. He claimed that he gained no sexual gratification from the killings. Regardless, the New Jersey State Police Lab managed to recover DNA samples from Adam's knife, and not only did they find Monica Massaro's DNA, but also the DNA of Darlene Ewalt. Todd Ewalt, Darlene's husband, had still been considered a person of interest in her murder up until this connection was established. Forensic evidence then linked Adam Lane to the attack on Patricia Brooks, through samples found on a pair of gloves. But this all left the investigators with one major question why? According to some sources, Adam Leroy Lane had a reputation as a woman hater. His ex-wife, who divorced him in 1993 after being married for five years, said quote, he thought women were beneath him and that he could do whatever he wanted. He hit me one time, he abused his mum, who would cuss her, call her names, hit on her, on the 11th of December 2007, Adam Leroy Lane pled guilty to the attack on Shay McDonough and her family. He pled guilty to 9 of the 10 charges that had been brought against him in the attack, including home invasion, armed assault in a dwelling, assault with intent to murder, and assault and battery with a dangerous weapon. The prosecutors agreed with Adam's defence team to drop a charge of assault with intent to rape a child. In the courtroom, Jeannie, Shay's mother, glared at Adam Lane as she describes the psychological trauma the attack had caused her. Adam Leroy Lane was then sentenced to 25 to 30 years in prison by the Massachusetts court. On the 29th of September 2008, Adam Leroy Lane was brought before the New Jersey Superior Court for the murder of Monica Massaro. Adam pled guilty to first-degree murder in a plea deal which saw him receive a 50-year imprisonment sentence and on the 28th of June 2010, Adam Lane pled guilty in a plea deal in Pennsylvania for the murder of Darlene Ewald, and the attempted murder of Patricia Brooks. The plea deal spared Adam of the death penalty, though it saw him being sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Darlene, and a consecutive term of 10 to 20 years for the attack on Patricia. The human hunter will spend the rest of his days rotting in prison, and I sincerely hope that the friends and family of his victims able to find justice with these convictions. Jeannie McDonough, the mother of Shay, actually went on to write an amazing book about this case, publishing in 2011, called Caught in the Act, a courageous family's fight to save their daughter from a serial killer. And that book, which goes into significant detail, has been pivotal to my research into this case. I highly recommend you check it out. You can, as always, find a link in my sources down below. And that's everything that we have for you in today's case. If you have a case that you want me to cover, head on over to requestacase.com and send in your submissions there. You can also see what other people have submitted and place your votes on what I should cover, so if you don't want to miss out on giving me your inputs, head over to requestacase.com. Make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. You don't want to miss out on my live true crime deep dives that we do here on my YouTube channel almost every Saturday at 10pm UK time. This Saturday's deep dive is exploring the horrifying murder of Jenna Burley. You can find a link in the pinned comments. Thank you once again to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Grab your one month free trial using the links below. Also, if you want to hang out with a small community of people who like true crime content, join our Discord server for free. Again, you can find a link to that in, in the description down below. You can find the links to everything. A special thank you to my Patreon members and channel members. Bellametheus, Nino Lover, MG, Bailey's Clubhouse, Katie from the Other Side, Michelle Johnston, Sherry L. Bandy, Lady Janice Mimi Fisher, Kirsty JG, Patricia Luna, Casey Monks, Samantha O'Hara, and Cicely Thomas. If you want to support this channel, get access to monthly case polls which are guaranteed to be made, get audio versions of my videos, scripts and more, hit that join button down below, or go to patreon.com forward slash Joshua Miles and become a Patreon or channel member today. And with that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Joshua Miles. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice and support.